Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would open to 2 Samuel 15, and we will continue our series in the life of David. 2 Samuel 15, we'll be covering about a chapter and a half today. It's been said that people are like tea bags. You don't know how strong they really are until you put them in hot water. <laughs> it's also been said that you never know who's been swimming without a bathing suit until the tide goes out. Crises have a way of revealing the truth. Crises peel away the exterior, the facades, and reveal the interior. The other thing crises often do is show you who your friends really are. David, in this chapter, is facing the toughest crisis of his life. About 10 to 12 years before this time, David has committed adultery with Bathsheba, as you know, we covered that two weeks ago, and arranged for her husband Uriah to be murdered. God sent Nathan the prophet to confront David with his sin. And when David repented and confessed, God forgave David. However, conduct always creates consequences. That's a good phrase to teach your grandchildren. Conduct creates consequences. Three C's. Conduct creates consequences. God told David that because of his sin, one of the consequences would be the sword would never depart from his house. There's going to be violence in his family from here on out. And God would raise up evil against him from his own family. That was one of the consequences of his sin. We're seeing how those consequences to begin to pile up. Last week, uh, we looked at the fact that seven days after his birth, David and Bathsheba's son that was conceived in adultery died. David's firstborn son, Amnon, raped his half-sister Tamar. Two years later, David's son Absalom had Amnon murdered for that violation of sister Tamar. Absalom then flees 90 miles north to his mother's ancestral home in Geshur, which is a little uh, Armenian kingdom uh, just north of Israel, Aramean rather, and remained there for three years. So son number two is uh, exile, a fugitive. David's general, Joab, persuades David to bring Absalom back home and try and reconcile him. David says, well, he can come home, but I'm not going to see his face. So Absalom moves back home, and David keeps him really under house arrest for two more years. So five years after Amnon was murdered by Absalom, he and David finally see each other's face once. And there's apparently no reconciliation between the two of them at that point in time. Absalom is not grateful that he didn't get the death penalty, which he should have for murdering his own brother, right? Absalom is both bitter and ambitious, and he immediately sets a plan in motion to overthrow his father, create a revolt, take over the kingdom. Now, you're David. Twelve years ago, you've sinned, you've arranged for the murder, 
of the woman you've had an affair with, the baby has died. God has said there's going to be consequences in your life. Your daughter gets raped by her brother. Another brother kills that daughter or kills that brother. And the brother that did that now is trying to kill you. I want you to put yourself emotionally in David's spot where he is. This son Absalom in chapter 15, I'm going to summarize the first few verses. He hires horses and chariots and 50 men to run ahead of him to let everybody know that Absalom is on the way. This guy is a celebrity hound, right? He's an egotist. Every morning he stands by the road that leads to City Hall. And that day, if you needed to talk to the king, you came to the city of Jerusalem and all the judicial governmental business took place in the city gates. That was a whole complex, not just a gate that opened, but it was a whole complex of buildings. It's where the judges were. That's where the, uh, all the governmental civic affairs took place. And if you needed to see the king, you came to the gate, stated your business and said, I need judicial protection or legal help or whatever. Absalom got in line before the gate. So when people walked up the path to talk to the king, Absalom would meet them. And he would say, you know, um, you really have a good case here, but the king is really too busy to see you. There's no one here to see you today. But if I were made king, I would make sure you got justice. It's interesting. You say, well, where's David at this time? If you read Psalm 41, Psalm 55, and Psalm 39, it seems as though David had an extended illness during this period of time, a number of years, 41, 55, and 39 of Psalms. And therefore, he was not necessarily available to be present to meet with the people. And Absalom, his son, took advantage of this. Absalom is slandering his father. He's saying, nah, King David is, you know, he's getting old. Kind of like us. He's gotten over the hill. He's too busy. You know, he's sick and he's not available to see you. But I would be a good candidate for king because I would make sure you got justice. So he's a good politician. Absalom, like any politician, tells the people that if they vote for him, he's going to give them what they want and they'll have all the goodies and no more taxes. Actually, we'll lower your taxes. Yeah. Some things never change. And just like today, Absalom looks like a king. He's handsome. He probably would have made perfect TV material. It says there wasn't a defect in him from the top of his head to the sole of his foot. He looked like Saul, tall, dark, and handsome. And as always, citizens are always looking like, uh, wanting to look, hire somebody who looks like a king. How many of you remember the movie Shrek? You remember Charming? Prince Charming. His favorite accoutrement was a mirror. That's Absalom. He was impressed with Absalom. So four years pass. Absalom has been, been engaged in selfless self-promotion and politicking. Four years later, he is going to make a bid for the throne. Beginning in verse 13, he launches a revolt. And we're going to take a look today at six separate scenes Robert Deffenbaugh, one of my favorite commentators, has pointed out, beginning in verse 13, the narrative follows a geographical format. You're going to see David fleeing from Jerusalem for his life, and there are six separate stops he makes, six separate geographical locations, and he meets six separate people at each location. I mean, at each one location. So six separate stops, six separate people. And you're, you're, whenever you read the scripture, it's always useful to say, 
Wonder why the Holy Spirit put that in. That's always a good question because one of the things we know about Scripture is it's an integrated message system written by God himself. Nothing in this book occurs by accident, by chance. Every name, every place name, every punctuation point, everything has purpose, everything has design. So when God puts six separate geographical locations to track David's flight out of Jerusalem to escape being killed by his son, we would be well advised to say, wonder what the point is. Well, when you meet the people that God has arranged for David to meet, you'll understand what the point is. Rob's going to give you a little bit of a shot of David's flight from Jerusalem. This is kind of the big picture where he goes all the way out of Jerusalem and all the way up and east across the Jordan River to where the uh, David's and Absalom's armies are going to fight. And we're going to get into that battle next week. But today we're only going to cover the first little part of that path inside Jerusalem and uh, just outside to a little village called Baharim. So at each geographical location, we're going to take a look at who he interacts with and why. Scene one takes place inside Jerusalem. And Jerusalem in that era was not Jerusalem today. When you look at Jerusalem today, it's an urban metropolitan area and every square inch of dirt has something built on it. The city of David, 1000 BC, the Jerusalem in David's time was a very small patch of dirt. It covered about 12 acres. This area here, Valley Baptist Church, sits on 27 acres, so less than half. 11 acres is about, or 12 acres is about nine football fields. So you want to get a picture of what, you know, 12 acres looks like. And that was all surrounded by walls at that point. The Gihon Spring was the water source for the city. And it was a natural defense because when you look at the city of David, it's surrounded on three sides by valleys. And only the north does not have a valley. So it's very, very easy to defend. This was where the Jebusites controlled it and David had conquered this some decades before. So let's pick up the narrative in chapter 15, verse 13. Then a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee. For otherwise, none of us will escape from Absalom. Go in haste or he will overtake us quickly and bring down calamity on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Then the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king chooses. Here's the first principle for today. True friends tell each other the truth. Pretty self-obvious statement, right? It's hard to believe that David had no knowledge of Absalom's political activities until this moment. I mean, surely over a four-year period, word would get back to David, rumors about Absalom's desire for the kingdom, his politicking, his slandering, etc., etc. But David has a very soft spot in his heart for his children. He's got a soft spot in his head for his children as well. He does not think clearly. He was Israel's greatest king. He was probably one of Israel's worst fathers. He probably didn't believe his own son would actually try and kill him. Because remember, when we're talking about a revolution here, that means the previous king dies for the next king to take over. This is not a peaceful transition of power like we have here where you can be an ex-president. There were no such things as ex-kings. There were only dead kings, right? So Absalom's taken over means David's going to die. So this is life and death. 
Now, to David's credit, once he knows the truth and he's persuaded of it, he takes immediate action. He says, we're out of here. We're going to flee. David, as a character, does much better in crises than he does with affluence. That's true for most of us, isn't it? When you see David's behavior, he almost always is at his best when there's a crisis going on, when he's under the gun, when he's suffering hardship. Affluence is not good for David, nor is it good for us, because the David of the desert is not the David of the palace. And that's true for us today as well. Now, in any crisis, you only have one of three choices. If there's a crisis going on in your life, you have three options. You fight, you flee, or you freeze. You have three choices. Flight, fight, or freeze. David freezes, he's going to be killed. Absalom's coming. If he fights inside Jerusalem, locks the walls and sets up a siege, Absalom's going to siege the place, a lot of people are going to die. A lot of innocent people are going to die. And of course, David loves Absalom anyway, doesn't want to fight him. So to buy time and prevent bloodshed, he decides to flee. We're going to leave. And I want you to notice the response of David's servants. What do David's loyal servants tell him in verse 15? Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever the Lord my king chooses. Well, the messenger number one told him the truth. One of the curses of kings and politicians and people in power is to know what reality is. Because when you're a powerful person, you're surrounded by what? Yes, yes people. You are told what you, what they believe you want to hear. And so powerful people can oftentimes be insulated and isolated from what's really going on. And that was true of David as well. But to his credit, when the messenger told him the truth, there's a revolution on hand. He believed it. Your son wants you dead. His servants say, we're here. We're not going anywhere. Wherever you want to go to stay in support, we're not going to abandon you. We are here. You know, the application is pretty simple. When the battles of life come, real friends are faithful. They're not flaky. So look in the mirror. Are you a flaky friend or are you a faithful friend? You've got friends in crises. If they're not in crises, they will be in crises. If you're not in a crisis yet, one's coming. It's just life, right? We live in a broken planet. Be faithful. Scene number two, on the edge of town. David is now walking out of the city of David. He's at the very last house of the city of David. And I want you to notice, I'm not sure which shot. Oh, very good. He goes down into the ravine, and we're going to get to that here in a second, but David is just at the last house. Verse 17, the king went out and all the people with him, and they stopped at the last house on the edge of town. Now all his servants passed on beside him, the Cherethites, the Pelethites, and all the Gittites, 600 men. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, why will you also go with us? Return and remain with the king, for you are a foreigner and also an exile. Return to your own place. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander with us? Will I go where I will? Return and take back your brother's mercy and truth be with you. I want you to circle verse 21. It's one of the most profound statements of loyalty in the entire Old Testament. But Ittai answered the king and said, As the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, surely wherever my lord the king may be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. Verse 22, therefore David said to Ittai, go and pass over. So Ittai passed over with all his men and all the little ones who were with him. I want you to underline the word, all the little ones. Right? Here's the principle. 
Friends stick together through the happy times and the hard times. We all have happy times, yes? When you're doing well, people love to be with you, right? How many of them still stay when you go through the hard times? That is a measure of real friendship. Now, David has been leading the way out of Jerusalem. He's the head of the line. And when we get to the very edge of town, he stops and he lets everybody pass him by. He lets every one of them pass him by and he's going to give them all the option to leave him or to go with him. He doesn't want anybody following that doesn't want to follow. So he gives them all the option to say, you don't have to follow me if you don't want. If you want to go back into the city and stay and make friends with Absalom, that's your call. So he's going to give them the option to leave if they choose. The Cherethites, the Pelethites, and the Gittites are David's honor guard. So they're his private security detail. They're kind of a secret service. Their primary job is to protect the life of the king, and they're all foreigners. And they all came from the land of Philistines. You will notice when you look at a little history, it was very common practice for kings throughout history to have their personal bodyguards always be foreigners. Always. Because they didn't have any political aspirations. If you are a foreign mercenary and you're a bodyguard to the king, there's no political aspirations. You're never going to get elected to public office. You're a foreigner. So that's been common practice historically. Indira Gandhi, who was uh, even in India in the, in the 80s and 90s, her bodyguards were not native Indians. That's just normal practice at that point. So some of these troops have been with David since his days in the desert. Now, at this point in time, David's probably 60, 62 years old. So some of these troops have been with him for three decades, long time, but not all. Ittai the Gittite from the city of Gath is a newcomer. He's a relative newcomer to David's troop. He and the troops he leads are exiles from Philistia, but they're recent exile. He's only recently immigrated to Israel. And David says, look, you, you're brand new with me. You don't have to stay with me. Why don't you go back to Jerusalem? Or if you want to go back to Philistia, go back to Philistia. No harm, no foul. This really isn't your fight, right? You're a Johnny come lately. You've got families. You've got young children. It says young children were with him. So he wasn't leading just warriors. He was leading the families with them. And David tells him the path ahead is going to be very uncertain, very dangerous. Feel free to go back if you want. And David gets a response from Ittai that has to be one of the most profound statements of loyalty anywhere in the Bible. It is all, it's a very poignant reminder of Ruth and Ruth's statement to Naomi. Ruth is uh, with Naomi and they're going back into the land of Israel from Moab. And Naomi says, Ruth, stay in Moab. Stay in your home country. And Ruth says in New Yorkese, forget about it. Here's what she says. Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And then she takes an oath. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse, if anything, but death parts you and me. And Ittai says, almost the same thing, 1521. As the Lord lives, that's an oath, and as my Lord the King lives, surely wherever my Lord the King may be, whether for life or for death, there also will your servant be. 
You know, the reality is we talk in man about doing life together. Life together in the happy times is good. Life together in the hard times is essential. It's essential. We live life on a broken planet and much of the time we're engaged in struggle. That's just the consequences of living in a land, in a, in a planet where Adam and Eve sinned and we have brokenness. And God designed us to do life together. That's why friends stick together. Ruth and Nitti are saying, it doesn't matter what the future is. It doesn't matter what the hardship. It doesn't matter whether it's life or death. I'm going to do this with you. Yes? That's what Christians do. That's what family does. And we are spiritual family. We do life together. Ruth and Ittai are saying, I'm renouncing my idols. I'm renouncing my past. I have identified myself as a follower of Yahweh. As a matter of fact, I've forsaken my homeland. I'm immigrating into the land of God's people. And I swear by the Lord himself that I am willing to lay down my life for you if that's what it takes, because I will do life with you until death. For both Ruth and Ittai, godly friendships are more important than a godless past. And the ultimate example of this is who? Jesus. Jesus said in John 13, 15, greater love has no one than this, than what? One will lay down their life for his friends. And he said that on a Thursday night and he laid down his life nine o'clock Friday morning on the cross. That's called practicing what you preach. You know, the application's pretty obvious. We're aliens on earth. Ruth and Ittai say, you know, our homeland is not our home. It's not permanent. We'd rather be with David and Naomi because they're followers of God. We are citizens of heaven, you and I. And our loyalty ultimately is to Jesus. Yes? Not to a physical location, not to a political cause, not to a piece of real estate, not to a moral philosophy, to a person. Jesus Christ himself. Most of us in this room will never have to physically die for anybody we love. Most of us in this room will probably never have to be a martyr for Jesus Christ. But we have a much harder task. Dying for someone you love is something you do once. Living for someone you love is a choice you make every single day. You lay down your life Every single day when you render service to the people you love. Every day you have that choice. Do I do the dishes or do I let them pile up into the sink until they can't stand it and then they'll do them? That's a decision. Right? There, and I'm just giving you little examples of decisions to lay down your life, lay down your time, which is life, lay down your energy, which is life, for those you love, one day at a time. And that's what we do with Jesus the same way. Because love, real friendship, is willing to serve sacrificially. Scene three. David's now at the edge of town, and he's getting ready to go down into the ravine. The brook Kidron, Rob's going to show you a picture, is a ravine. They call it a valley. It's a very small valley. It's really a ravine. When you leave Jerusalem to the east, you go downhill into this ravine, called the Brook Kidron or the, the, the Kidron Valley, and then you climb up the other side to the, to the Mount of Olives. So the Mount of Olives is on the right, and all those white things there are Jewish tombs, and they've been there for centuries and centuries. 
On the left-hand side is the city of Jerusalem, and you can probably see just a little bit of the, of the wall at that point in time, which wasn't there when David was there. Verse 23. While the country was weeping with a loud voice, all the people passed over. That means they passed over the brook Kidron. They've walked down the hill, the east side of Jerusalem. They're now headed east toward the Mount of Olives. The king also passed over the brook Kidron, and all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. That's south into the desert. I mean, east into the desert. Now behold, Zadok also came, and all the Levites with him, carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark of God, and Abiathar came up until all the people had finished passing from the city. The king said in verse 24 to Zadok, Return the Ark of God to the city. If I find favor in the sight of the Lord, then he will bring me back again and show me both it and his habitation. But if he should say thus, I have no delight in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me as it seems good to me. Here's the principle. God is always in control of your circumstances. God is always in control of your circumstances. That's a statement of faith because many times we can't see that. It doesn't seem like anybody's in control. God is always in control of your circumstances. So trust him. So surrender to him. And that's what David does. Now, when you leave Jerusalem, you go east, you descend to the Kidron Valley, you begin to climb up to the Mount of Olives. This valley, this Kidron Valley runs north and south, and it really separates the city of Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. And the word Kidron means dark, means dark or black. At one point in time, all of the sewage of the city was washed out through the Kidron Valley. That's why it was called black or dark. It was a sewage pit, right? And the Gihon Springs were the water source for this Kidron Brook. And all the temple sacrifices and all the sewage of the city, they just washed it down. And this Kidron Valley takes a winding course and it descends 4,000 feet from Jerusalem all the way to the Dead Sea. So you had a 20-mile wadi or ravine and it was kind of the sewage dump that went from the city of Jerusalem if there was enough water and took it all the way down to the Dead Sea. A thousand years after David crosses this brook, who else crossed this brook? Jesus, right? On the way to where? Gethsemane, which is on the side of the Mount of Olives. Now, David's just crossing this brook at the bottom of the valley, and he encounters two priests, Zadok and Abiathar. They're both priests. Zadok is the high priest. And they and the Levites have carried the Ark of the Covenant of God... Those of you who saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know what we think it looked like at that point. And they brought the Ark of God to David. In the past, the Israelites have ascribed magical powers to this golden box. They think if you have this golden box, if you got the box, you got God. Right? So Eli, a former high priest a couple hundred years before this, his sons actually took the Ark into battle with the Philistines because they thought, this is a magic good luck charm. We've got God in the box. And if we bring the box to battle, we'll bring God to battle and we're sure to win. And God said, no, you're mishandling my glory. You're misrepresenting my power. And he let the Philistines capture the ark. And of course, they returned to date much later after they were plagued at that point. But David tells them, bring the ark back to Jerusalem. David understands that the ark itself has no power at all. It's the God who made the covenant with Israel that the ark represents. He has the power to bring victory. 
He also tells them, by the way, while you're back at Jerusalem, you can be my eyes and ears. You're inside the city. If you hear anything that Absalom is planning, send your sons, Jonathan and Himaz. They can be couriers at that point. Good information is essential to good decision making. The most important part of this particular section, though, is the last two verses. David says, if I find favor in the sight of God, then he will bring me back to Jerusalem. But if God says, I have no delight in you, then let him do whatever seems good to him. So David is surrendered to God regardless of what God has for him. The message for us is, I'm, I'm persuaded that when we pray, we usually pray with an agenda. How many of you have an agenda when you pray? You may not write it down, but I would be persuaded that most of our agenda when we pray is, God, I would like you to do X. God, please do X. God, really, really, really please do X and do it right now. Right? We, we have an agenda that we want God to perform. David says, I'm done with agendas. I have followed my will into sin and I'm living with the consequences. Lord, I want what you want. If you want me to be king, you'll bring me back. If you don't want me to be king, then you have a better plan for me and I'm okay with that. Whatever your agenda is for my life, whatever your plan is for my life, whatever choices you make for my life, I'm submitting to that. These circumstances are beyond hopeless. There is no human hope for David. He has a very, very few men, 600. That's not a, any match for Absalom's army that's coming. He's old and tired, 62. He's, he's experiencing the judgments of God. And now all he can do is say, Lord, I surrender myself to you. And you and I are in the same position. God is always in control of everything, including our circumstances. And therefore, the wisest thing we can do is simply say, Lord, I surrender to you. I trust you for this coming week and this coming month. Scene four. David has now crossed the brook Kidron and he's beginning to climb the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives, of course, the, um, it's interesting. I, I uh, started scouring some old pictures. The Mount of Olives as it looks today is nowhere near what it looked like 200 years ago. How many of you have been to Israel? When you go to Israel today, you will see temples and churches and everything everywhere. hundred years ago, it was pretty much just bare dirt, right? The Mount of Olives, bare dirt. But they call it the Mount of Olives because for thousands of years, they have grown olives on that mountain, right? And the Garden of Gethsemane is an olive grove up the side of the hill. And I've walked that up and down, and it takes a little doing at that point in time. But verse 30 says, David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives. By the way, he's headed south and east trying to escape from Absalom. So that's where he's going. And wept as he went. And his head was covered, and he walked barefoot, and so did all the people with him. Verse 31. Now someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said... O Lord, I pray, make the counsel of Ahithophel foolishness. Verse 32, it happened as David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, that behold, Hushai the archai met him with his coat torn and dust on his head. David said to him, if you pass over with me, then you will be a burden to me. 
Verse 34, but if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been my father, your father's servant in the past, so I will now be your servant, then you can thwart the counsel of Ahithophel for me. Here's the principle. God often answers our prayers by arranging divine appointments with people. And all of you in the room have had this experience over and over and over. You issue a prayer, and many, many times we forget what we've even asked for. And 48 hours later, we run to the so-and-so who says, call so-and-so, and we do, and we get an answer. And most of the time, we go, wasn't that a coincidence? There are no coincidences in God's kingdom. Everything in God's universe happens by design because there is not a subatomic particle that moves without the permissive will of Almighty God. So actually, when you look at this passage, David has six different divine appointments, six geographic locations. Every single one of these appointments are by divine design. David's going to meet all these six people and God's arranged each one to show up. So David and his followers are weeping. They climb up the Mount of Olives. When you walk barefoot in that era and your head's covered, that's obviously a sign of extreme grief and extreme mourning. And I'm sure David is devastated because all of this, all of this was preventable. Completely preventable. None of this had to happen. Sin has consequences. And the consequences never just affect you. They affect everyone around you. It's like dropping a rock in a pond and the ripples go all the way to the edge. The good news is when you live for Jesus, those ripples affect people beyond what you can imagine as well. So doing what is right also has wonderful consequences. But David is devastated because he knows it's his sin. And he, can't, he says, well, I can't get worse than this. And then he gets the crushing news that his chief advisor and prime minister Ahithophel this guy was the Secretary of State. It was the closest advisor he had, has defected to his son. Why that's so bad is that Hithophel's advice is so reliably accurate. He is right almost 100% of the time that everyone in the land believes that when he speaks, God speaks. When words come out of his mouth, that is the same as God speaking. So this guy has a tremendous track record for being correct. And you say, well, <clears throat> if he's David's close friend, why would he desert David and follow Absalom into revolt? I only have to tell you one thing. Ahithophel is the grandfather of Bathsheba. So when David committed adultery with Bathsheba, that's the granddaughter of his chief advisor. Do you think that might change the nature of their relationship? You think? And he has... His granddaughter's husband killed. This is his opportunity for revenge. And he's been percolating on this for 10 to 12 years. He must have been furious at David for seducing his granddaughter, murdering her husband. And David knows that Ahithophel is going to give Absalom very good advice. Advice that's so good that it may result in David's death. And David has no idea what to do, so he does the wisest thing he can do, which is what? Pray, and we've talked about this, is always the first thing you should do. 
And by the way, from personal experience, the most important thing you can do is pray before you speak. I have dug more holes with my tongue by refusing to pray first. It's remarkable how deep a hole we can dig unless we pray first. It is remarkable how much of a backhoe comes out of your mouth without the Holy Spirit. So he prays, God thwart the counsel of Ahithophel. It's going to be good counsel unless there's divine intervention Intervention here. I'm going to be dead because Ahithophel is going to give Absalom really good counsel about how to take me out. The next verse, David sees his answer to prayer. And the answer to prayer is not an angel. The answer to prayer is not a supernatural event. The answer to prayer is not a dream. The answer to prayer is a person. Hushai. God has sent Hushai to walk up the other side of the Mount of Olives and meet him at the summit. Hushai meets him with torn clothes, dust on his head. Those are all signs of mourning. And God not only sent Hushai to David, God sent something else to David. Where do you think David got the idea that it would be good for Hushai to go back into Jerusalem and give counsel that will contradict Ahithophel's counsel. Where did that come from? The Holy Spirit. Put that in David's mind. Have you ever thought about how many really good ideas you have? None of them are yours. They're all blessings from the Holy Spirit. When you pray... And you do pray, and you get a thought comes into your head. Have you ever thought, that, that's, that's the direct answer to prayer. I should call so-and-so. You think, what am I going to do with this problem? An hour later, I need to call so-and-so. Don't write that off. Get on the phone. That's the Holy Spirit prompting you to, to bring you answers through people. So David gets that idea, and he says, Hushai, you can be advantageous to me. You can give advice that will defeat Ahithophel's counsel. By the way, this is almost impossible. It's mission impossible because Absalom's going to believe everything Ahithophel tells him, right? So God's going to have to speak through Hushai to lead Absalom astray into defeat, and we're going to find that out next week. David says, by the way, Hushai, once you figure out what his plans are, tell me so I can respond accordingly at that point. Scene five. We're just over the top of the summit of the Mount of Olives. David's climbed out of Jerusalem, down the ravine, Kidron, crossed the book, up the top of the Mount of Olives, just at the summit he meets Hushai. He's just over the top of the Mount of Olives, and at the very summit of the Olives, Mount of Olives, he's going to run into Ziba the deceiver. Verse 1, chapter 16, verse 1. Now when David had passed a little beyond the summit, behold, Ziba the son of Mephibosheth met him with a couple of saddled donkeys, and on them were 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, 100 summer fruits, and a jug of wine. The king said to Ziba, why do you have these? And Ziba said, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride, and the bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat, and the wine for whoever is faint in the wilderness. Verse 3, then the king said, and where is your master's son? Where is Mephibosheth? Ziba said to the king, Behold, he is staying in Jerusalem. For he said, Today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. Remember, Mephibosheth is Jonathan's son. Mephibosheth is Saul's grandson. Ziba says, He's staying in Jerusalem because he, Absalom is going to give me the kingdom back. So David says in verse 4, This is a colossal blunder. Behold, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. Here's the principle. Avoid making decisions when you are hangry or in a hurry. For those of you who don't know what hangry is, it's hungry and angry and tired and all, not enough sleep, whatever it is. We just kind of bundle all that together. 
Not everyone bearing gifts to you is a genuine friend. Sometimes people just give you gifts because they want to soften you up to get something in return. Ziba is Saul's former farm manager. He manages the whole estate. And when David said, I want to bless the house of Jonathan, I want to bless Jonathan, my good friend, his family. So he takes Mephibosheth the cripple who fell at five years old, probably broke both his ankles. He brings him into the palace. He commanded Ziba, this servant, you take care of the whole estate and it's all going to Mephibosheth. And Ziba was not a happy camper because he lost control over all the revenue from Saul's estate because now the king held him accountable to give it to Mephibosheth. So Ziba's got some incentives here to kind of elbow Mephibosheth out of the way. So he brings a gift to David and then he slanders Mephibosheth. He says, he's staying in Jerusalem. He's waiting for the king to come back. He's not loyal to you. Now that was a bald-faced lie. But David bought it hook, line, and sinker. And in one sentence, he disinherits Mephibosheth. Out. And in one sentence, just like the lottery, he gives it all to Ziba. Like that. We're going to find out in a chapter or two later, Mephibosheth, in fact, is the loyal friend of David. Amen. Loyal friend. And this decision to disinherit Mephibosheth was a colossal mistake. The message is, we can look at David and say, why did you do that? Well, if your life's in danger and you haven't slept and you haven't ate and you're hangry and tired and hungry, you would probably make far worse decisions than this. I know I would. But it's good counsel to say, major decisions, by the way, Marin and I have a rule. Nothing serious gets decided after 9 p.m. I'm serious. We don't have a brain that works after 9 p.m. My brain's cornmeal mush. So think about that. Trying to solve a problem just before you go to bed. Not a good idea. You know, I had a friend of mine, an acquaintance of mine, he couldn't sleep. He was having real trouble sleeping. I said, what do you do before you go to bed? He says, well, I'm watching Fox News from 5 to 11. I said, I don't care what station you're watching, you can pick it, but if you're watching news for six hours, your blood pressure is going to be at stroke level by the time you go to bed. Of course you're not going to sleep, right? So no major decisions too late at night. Your brain's not working. That's what David forgot. Scene six, David's going down to the city of Bahurim. Verse five, when David came to Bahurim, behold, there came out from there a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei the son of Gera, and he came out cursing continually. Underline those two words, as he came. He threw stones at David, and all, all the servants of David, and all the people, and all the mighty men were at his right and his left hand. Then Shimei said when he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of bloodshed, you worthless fellow. The Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned, and the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. And behold, you are taken in your own evil, for you are a man of bloodshed. Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, this is David's cousin, said to the, I mean, his nephew said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Let me go over now and cut off his head. King said, what do I have to do with you, O sons of Zeruiah? Zeruiah is David's sister. Abishai is one of her kids. If he curses and the Lord has told him, curse David, then who shall say, why have you done so? Verse 11, let him alone and let him curse for the Lord has told him. Verse 12, perhaps the Lord will look upon my affliction and return good to me instead of his cursing this day. So David and his men went on the way and Shimei went along on the hillside parallel with them. And as he went, he cursed and cast stones and threw dust. This guy is your out of control neighbor. You know who I'm talking about. 
or the one two doors down or the one on the next block who parties late and the dogs go crazy and at 2 a.m. you want to go lock and load and go settle things, right? That's what Abishai does. There's an Abishai in all of us. Believe me, you know? Let me just go cut his head off, shut him up. I mean, that would be a solution, right? <laughs> However, the principle is the truth is always your friend, even when it's spoken by an enemy. Ooh, you had to go there, Brad. The truth is always your friend, even when spoken by an enemy. Now, Baharim here is a small village, not far from Jerusalem. He's met by this character named Shimei. Shimei's from the family of Saul. He's a relative. And he has been furious for years that David took Saul's place over Israel. And of course, you have to understand that there's a ravine between Shimei and David. A ravine. So they're walking parallel. And Shimei's got a big mouth and he's yelling across the ravine and cursing and calling names. There's a ravine between him and David and all those mighty men. So he's really brave as long as he's got some running room, right? You know people like that. You know dogs like that. You know, that's how it is. They're really brave when they've got some backup. There's something between. So David's weak. He's fleeing. Now Shimei has now been thinking this for years. Now he's going to say it, right? He curses him. He calls him a man of bloodshed. And Shimei had some things very wrong. Number one, David did not steal Saul's throne. Saul got killed from disobedience. And number two, God never gave Absalom David's throne. Shimei's got that wrong too. However, Shimei's got one thing right. David is a man of bloodshed. He did murder Uriah in cold blood. This is not warfare. This is innocent blood thou shalt not murder. Violation of the Ten Commandments. He did get that right. Abishai, Joab's brother, Joab's the general, Abishai's his second to command. He didn't want to hear anything more out of Shimei. He wants to go over, shut his mouth up, cut his head off. And Abishai says what well, a lot of people are thinking, but this is David's probably one of his finest hours. He chooses not to retaliate. He believes that God may be speaking truth to him through Shimei, his enemy. You know, how many of you have people that criticize you? How many of them are blood relatives? Yeah, there's, there's usually the ones that are the quickest on the draw, all right? It's, it's hard to listen to criticism. It's even harder to believe that there just might be an element of truth in that criticism. It's hard to believe that God has truth to speak to you out of the mouth of someone who intends you harm. These people are not motivated. They're not criticizing to help. This is not constructive criticism. They're criticizing you because they don't like you. God says there can be truth and I can be using an enemy to that. Sometimes your best friends can be your enemies because they will tell you what you don't want to hear, but you desperately may need to hear. I don't even like the fact that I just said that. But it's the truth. God speaks through a huge variety of sources. Sometimes your friends speak the truth. Sometimes your enemies speak the truth. Sometimes out of the mouth of your two-year-old grandchild, they will say something and God takes that and sticks a knife in your heart and it should be there, right? Like when you're talking to them and they grab your face and they turn your face and they say, look at me, pay attention. I want to know I gotcha, right? 
God can use their criticism to make us more like Jesus. And David is willing to endure the criticism of humans because he's trusting God to care for him. He knows that ultimately Shimei can only do what God allows him to do. And we have difficult people in our lives, lots of them. Lots of them. Number one, pray for them. Number two, pray for yourself. You represent Jesus Christ. You bear his label. We should behave toward them like Jesus behaved toward the people that did him in. He could have called 12,000 legions of angels. I would have called them in a nanosecond. He didn't because he loved them. And then pray for insight. Pray that the Lord will show you what lessons he wants you to learn from their criticism. Where is the truth in what they're saying? And Lord, am I available or open to that? Let's summarize and then we'll open it up for questions before Tom comes for our prayer and praises. Six major points, six locations, six people, and six lessons, one at each location. Scene number one, true friends tell each other the truth. Scene number two, Etii the Gittite, friends stick together through good times and hard times. David meets Zadok and Abiathar. God is always in control of your circumstances, so trust him, surrender to him. Scene four, David meets Hushai at the top of the mountain. God often answers our prayers by arranging divine appointments with people. Scene five, David and Ziba, the deceiver. Avoid making decisions when you're hangry or in a hurry. And lastly, where David meets his enemy, Shimei, the truth is always your friend, even when spoken by an enemy. I love you guys. Now that you know... Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.